So how does El Salvador's civil war fit into the broader history of Central America in the last years of the, of the Cold War? Okay, well, it is, it is a million-dollar question because the Salvadoran civil war is part and parcel of the last phase of the Cold War, but I see it as kind of a proxy war, actually. The Reagan administration, when it took over in 1980, was very interested in some sort of a, a final showdown with the Soviet Union but not a nuclear showdown with the Soviet Union. And the Salvadoran Civil War had actually already started at that point. Of course, there were Marxist guerrillas who wanted to take over the country. Um, So in that sense, it really is a a Cold War um, scenario. But the objective of the Reagan administration was to find a way to have actually a head-to-head, as I said, with the Soviet Union. And this was not a very dangerous venue. We were not going to go to nuclear war, anybody, over El Salvador. And so during the Reagan years, the confrontation in El Salvador, the civil war in El Salvador, which really was a civil war between two sides within El Salvador, became a global confrontation um, between the East and the West. Uh, And it it took on a much larger status than it had had in the popular imagination in the United States. And we became very directly involved in it. I'm sure you're familiar already with Jean Kirkpatrick's symmetry theory, but she eventually, uh, of course, became a cabinet member in the Reagan administration, but she had written a very influential academic article, a rare breed of an an influential academic article, where she talked about authoritarian governments and totalitarian governments. And authoritarian governments, she wrote, were undesirable, but they could be negotiated into democracy. That is, they would be willing, and there was historical precedence precedence for their um, being willing to allow for elections and to essentially negotiate themselves out of power. Um, On the other hand, she argued that totalitarian governments, which may look like authoritarian governments in a lot of ways, but were fundamentally different, and that is that they would never negotiate themselves out of power. Of course, obviously this is before the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, It's before the end of the Central American conflict. You can think of a lot of examples now where that's not true. But at the time, um, it held a certain amount of credibility with many influential circles because authoritarian governments were uh, generally thought of as being, say, governments of dictatorships like Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. And totalitarian governments were communist governments. Simple enough. Uh, and so, in the sort of larger dynamic of the uh, Reagan era thinking, El Salvador became the case for authoritarian government, and Nicaragua became the case for totalitarian government. And so, the symmetry was between those two, which I think is one reason why um, Guatemala never really was much on the radar of the United States during that year, those years, even though there was a, a catastrophic civil war going on there too that was actually in a lot of ways very much like El Salvador's but you don't have symmetry anymore if you include Guatemala. So that's the short answer to a big question. Right. Um, Well, you've talked a little bit about this already, but uh, outside of Latin Americanist academic circles, could you describe the level and type of awareness in the United States during the 1980s about El Salvador's civil war? Well, there's actually a fair amount of uh, passion about that war one way or the other uh, in the U.S. during those years. I would say certainly it was most um, acute on campuses uh, where people were really keeping up with what, what was going on. But 
Um, El Salvador and Nicaragua both were often on the front page of the New York Times uh, in a way that no Latin American nation ever makes it any longer. Um, it's certainly because that's where people got their news and I think it's important to remember when you're talking about El Salvador and we're talking about this, the exhibit at the Ransom Center that um, even though we're just talking about 20 years ago, um, the way people got their information was much more limited than it is now. There were not a lot of venues for getting news. You got news off the radio, you got it out of newspapers, and you got it off TV. And when that was all conventional media, all three of them sort of said the same thing. Um, and so certainly what the average American knew about El Salvador was what you were sort of supposed to know about El Salvador. And you know, very much in the paradigm of, of the administration's thinking. Um, but there was also a, a fairly large population of people who were, um, I guess to some extent, the products of the Vietnam era who were very dubious of American intervention anywhere, particularly small countries that didn't have a lot of say, um, like Vietnam and like El Salvador. And that sector was very quick to immediately label um, El Salvador as another Vietnam. And of course that set off alarms among people who oppose war for other ideolo ideological reasons, that it would be another uh, stalemate or another defeat like Vietnam had been. Um, but I think in general people knew El Salvador was there, they knew it was a problem. I think they would have been hard pressed to really tell you beyond a very uh, black and white scenario of a communist government trying to take, or excuse me, a communist guerrilla force trying to take over a government. Uh, what was really at stake there? Right. Well, uh, the the conference has a great focus on image and memory in El Salvador, and I'm wondering how well you think U.S. citizens today remember the conflict and our government's role in it. That's a, that's a good question. Um, well, I guess I'll, you know, I'll tell you this anecdote. I teach a Central American history class, undergraduate Central American history class, and obviously the people who are in that class were not even born during the conflict. Uh, but usually there are people in it whose parents were in El Salvador at the time. I mean, a lot of times I'll get somebody who was either born in El Salvador and came up here we're moving beyond that in, in chronology now, but or came up here as a baby or came up here as a little kid or was born here but their parents had recently come from El Salvador. And they don't even know. <laughs> even they don't know what, what really happened. They don't even know why their parents came. They don't even know what side their parents were on. And one of the assignments I give in that class is if you have a family history like that, to go back and just ask your parents why they came up. And um, Many times the parents were very much involved in the war on one side or the other and left for that reason. They were afraid they were going to be killed and never mentioned it to their kids. Well, people who were directly involved in the war don't talk about it. You can be sure that it, people have, have largely forgotten about it. The other thing is that um, I happened to be in Central America when Ronald Reagan died and there was all the stuff on TV about it. And it was fascinating to me to, to see that the way he was remembered was not for what had happened in Central America, but what had happened with the Soviet Union. 
there was very little mention, even on Central American TV, about the role the United States had played in those wars. Um, so if you want to talk about uh, a sort of a piece of history that's hidden in plain sight, I would say this is, this is a place to look. Right. Well, um, 15 years after the signing of the peace accords in El Salvador, um, what, what is the status today of human rights in the country? Well, I, I wish I could give a nicer answer <laughs> than is really the case there. Um, well, let me preface it by saying that in a lot of ways, El Salvador has done better than you might have expected. If you look at sort of basic economic and social indicators in El Salvador, uh, you see dramatic improvements over the, the period of the war and the period before the war. But of course the war never did solve the basic problems that it started over. You know, the basic problems that that led people to take up arms against the government were still there and, and in some cases even worse than, than, than when they had taken up arms. Um, El Salvador has been successful in that they have had free transitions of power, they have genuine elections that are meaningful, that have a much higher voter participation than you find in the United States, not to say it's high, but it's higher than you find here. Um, and so I think all those are, are hopeful signs. Crime in El Salvador is a disaster. Um, and I, say, I would say that that is a greater problem, the delinquencia común, you know, just a common crime, than human rights violations in the sense that, that we commonly think of human rights violations, in the sense that they are um, violations by the government of the, the civil rights and, and human rights of, of its citizens. Um, in terms of the government's uh, or death squads um, killing people, that doesn't really happen very much anymore. Occasionally, there's an occasional incident where maybe a labor leader dies mysteriously that immediately raises questions in your mind. Um, but by and large, it's, uh, it's like night and day uh, from 15 years ago. That said, the common crime is so pervasive in El Salvador and such a problem that I would call it a crisis of democracy. Um, and that crime comes from a lot of places. It comes from um, gangs, which were a problem that didn't even exist in the 1980s. Not the kind of gangs like Salvatruches and, and, uh, and others that, that now, um, in, in some ways, run whole sectors of the country. And they have, they're truly transnational organizations that have close ties to <clears throat> um, their fellow gang members elsewhere in Central America and in the United States. Um, you also have what um, Robert Carmack has called a culture of violence in El Salvador. That is where you have a, a country where, uh, or a society where you have a long history of violence. That is the resolution of problems through violence. It's very hard for people to lose that habit. And so things that might have been resolved in a different kind of manner tend to be resolved violently in El Salvador so people can get killed over five dollars. Um, which isn't a lot of money even in El Salvador. Um, you could say in a way the gang problem also has its roots in the war because um, the gang members of today, whether they're in Los Angeles or in their, whether they're in San Salvador, are kids who are in some ways a product of the war. That is, uh, they were, like I said, they were born in El Salvador or they were born in the United States and grew up as sort of instead of bi-national people, non-national people, 
adrift in, in U.S. society and sort of picked up the worst attributes of U.S. culture um, and find meaning and belonging within the gangs. Um, if they were born in El Salvador and they commit a crime, then they're deported there. And the group they immediately find there is, of course, the gang. Um, and so you have this sort of lawless, border-free zone um, that is sort of outside of the, it's, it's outside of civil society altogether. And it's very hard for any government to um, get a grip on, on, on the crime. It also is a place where the average citizen feels an enormous amount of dissatisfaction, that the government can't provide basic services like safety, like the idea that you can walk to the store and walk back safely to your home. Um, and, and until they find a way to resolve that, um, that's going to be a challenge to, to democracy, I think. Okay. Well, there you go. Virginia Burnett, thank you very much.